Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council. Just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 165 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, welcome Steve Peterson from such bands as Cursive, The White Octave, Slowdown Virginia, and Criteria. The Boys and Criteria, after 15 years, have a new album entitled Years, coming out on 15 Passenger Records next month. And Steve was kind enough to spend some time with Washed Up to talk about it. If you're listening to this in the future, it is out now on streaming services. In this episode, we have dive into how Steve met Tim and Matt from Cursive, what the glue was behind the Omaha scene, and how that led to Saddle Creek Records starting up. We also discuss how he divides up work and play, now that was achieved while attending law school at Duke. We try and touch on every part of Steve's career, and most of all, talk about the new Criteria record. With that said, you're about to hear a little taste of that album with a song called Agitate Resuscitate. Fun fact, it's Steve's first, third album as a musician. That is reason enough to celebrate, and you'll learn why later on in the podcast. Thank you all Patreon supporters out there. This podcast is made with love from the help of your contributions every single month that goes toward the upkeep of the website, servers, and the like. If you want to support too, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 165 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Steve Peterson from Cursive, The White Octave, Slowdown Virginia, and Criteria. Musical memories were probably listening to like Peter Paul and Mary records. That my uh, my parents were big Peter Paul and Mary fans, and that would have been, gosh, I don't know how old I was, but I just remember I vividly remember that music very early on in my life. Did you start to feel like, wow, there's got to be more out there? <clears throat> Not at the point of Peter Paul and Mary. I think for me, I so I had the good fortune of having an older brother, and he was kind of my gateway into. Uh, cool music, which probably started in, I don't know, maybe fifth grade. So I was probably um, 10, 11, 10, yeah, 10 years old. And um, my brother was uh, getting into bands like Husker Du and R.E.M. um, and uh, Led Zeppelin um, and the clash and the who. And so those are kind of, that was kind of my first 
um, group of bands that I would listen to because that's what my brother was listening to. So that was really the moment where I was like, wow, music can be really cool. Like, this is really cool music. And then I started to kind of branch out and find my own bands. Uh, I got really into the band that actually inspired me to get a guitar was this band called Love and Rockets. They uh, kind of rose from the ashes of Bauhaus. Um, it's kind of like Bauhaus minus Peter Murphy. Um, and they had this song called No New Tale to Tell. And I just thought the opening, which is just like basically an acoustic guitar line, was just so cool uh, that I had to learn it. Um, and I had been taking piano. At this point, I'm, you know, 14 years old. So we've, I've moved a little forward in, in, in the life of Steve. But uh, by the time I was uh, 14, I had sort of discovered... Uh, you know, Love and Rockets and Bauhaus and They Might Be Giants, like uh, the album Lincoln by They Might Be Giants. I was just a huge fan of that record. Uh, and um, like Life's Rich Pageant and Fables of the Reconstruction by R.E.M. And um, this band called Drama Rama. Uh, and then like Who's Could Do and... Um, you know, kind of a couple other bands that just really got me excited about music. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And, and Love and Rockets was kind of the band that got me interested in uh, learning to play the guitar. And so you'd started with piano and then, you know, you saw the guitar and you realized like, this is going to be a lot more fun. <laughs> oh yeah. It was totally my jam. Uh, almost immediately. Uh, I, I think I took four or five years of piano lessons and really made no uh, progress musically within two weeks of owning a, a guitar. I was a more competent um, guitar player than I was a uh, piano player. And I never, uh, and I'm sure there was probably some foundational work that the piano provided that allowed me to sort of accelerate. Um, but I never took any lessons um, and just kind of, you know, I learned that Love and Rocket song, but I didn't even learn the whole song. Like, I just, I never spent a lot of time uh, learning other people's music. I just immediately started kind of writing my own. Wow. Yeah. You're in a cover band or you're going to play a few right. songs through and then you start playing your own stuff. I went the opposite direction. I was writing my own. I mean, and I don't even know if, I guess you could call them songs, but I was writing my own music from the start and eventually did actually get into a band called the March hairs. And I don't know if you've ever spoken with any of the cursive guys like Tim or Matt. I have, I have spoken uh, with Tim. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, the March hairs was Tim Kasher, uh, who sings and plays guitar in cursive and Matt McGinn, who plays bass and, uh, me, uh, and this guy named Jim Rubino, who actually sang in the band, and a guy named Casey Coniglia, who played drums. And that was kind of the first band that I had gotten into, uh, was with Matt and Tim. And we played like probably 60% originals and then 40% covers. And we would like play like all the little high school dances around town and, you know, occasionally get like a gig at a bar, which is like a really big deal when you're. 15 or 16 and you're like hanging out at a bar. How did you meet uh, those guys? 
Um, so uh, I met, man, I remember the first time I met Tim. I was at a Catholic youth uh, soccer tournament in Okoboji, Iowa. <laughs> uh, and I was in, probably, I was probably in seventh, I must have been in seventh grade, and Tim was in eighth grade. He was a year ahead of me. We went to different Catholic grade schools. Mm-hmm. Um, he went, I went to St. Roberts, he went to St. Pius. Um, but I just remember, like, <clears throat> at the beginning of this tournament, there's, like, an opening ceremony. Like, they, they make a big deal out of it. And all these little, you know, Catholic school boys and girls are, like, marching around this track uh, for the parents to kind of begin the opening ceremonies, like a mini Olympics. And I just remember walking around the track of my soccer team. And then I didn't know where this kid who had, like, taken his shirt, like, the front of his shirt, and then lifted it up and, like, put it behind his head. So, like, he was still wearing the shirt, mm-hmm. but it was, like, exposing his chest. Was, like, walking around, like, almost kind of like Quasimodo. Uh, and just kind of, like, growling. Uh, and just acting like a total jackass. Uh, and that was, that was my introduction to Tim. <laughs> uh, just, just a completely... Uh, free-spirited, unhinged, uh, bizarre young man. Um, I met Matt the next year. So when I was in eighth grade, I met Matt. He went to a different Catholic grade school too. He and Tim grew up like down the street from each other. So they were, they were thick as thieves in grade school. Um, and also like the youngest, they both came from families with a lot of older siblings and Mm. they were kind of the, they were the trailers. Like they were both I think maybe 10, maybe five or 10 years younger than their next youngest sibling. So wow. they were kind of, yeah. So they, they just had a lot in common. I met Matt at a, at a high school party um, when I was in eighth grade, which was um, unusual. Uh, I think at that time for both of us to have been at a, at a party. Um, and I just thought he was like the coolest dude. Like he had uh these really sweet Adidas Stan Smith tennis shoes that I just thought were so cool. Like he was totally styling. Um, and then we all wound up going to the same, uh, high school together and they had started a band almost straight away in high school. Uh, and I had, I had yet to pick up, uh, an instrument. Um, and so about, I think kind of halfway through my sophomore year, they asked me to join their band March hairs. And and I did. What what music did you guys connect on? Like, did you mention your Husker Du or Drama Rama? Were they were they also telling you about stuff that you'd never heard? Because I think it's one thing to mention too from a small town. Like, it's sometimes really hard to find out about stuff. Absolutely, dude. And we're talking about like 1990. You know, uh, <laughs> when um, <laughs> things were not things were not accessible, and we did not have a college radio station. Mm. Um, so it was, it was not easy to, um, to discover, uh, bands. Um, but they introduced me to the Pixies. No shit. Uh, yeah. Which was like, um, a real revelation for me. Um, and then also, um, at that time we were really into this band, like at the early March Harris time, we were like really into, uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket. Do you remember mm-hmm. that band? Of course I remember them, yeah. Yeah, so like all of these, you know, so just all of these kind of um, seemingly contradictory influences, you've got sort of these like really kind of 
angular, aggressive rock of the Pixies with sort of these sensitive, traditionally structured uh, indie pop, like uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket. Um, we're all kind of coming together as we were starting to write um, our own music. I, I wish I could watch them tell you about the Pixies for the first time again. Cause I bet your mind, your like <laughs> right. synapses were probably going insane. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, um, it blew my mind. Like at first I was really almost kind of scared of it. Right. Um, I'm trying to remember what, um, that's interesting. I've never thought about that being scared. You're yeah, right. But it was just like, it was uh, like black Francis was just like screaming at me. And, and you know, there is some screaming and who's screw do, but the way that black Francis screamed was like, like it was like, he was murdering someone or he was being murdered. Uh, and there was just something way more visceral, um, and immediate about what he was doing. Um, that really like freaked me out, but in a really good way, you know, March Harris kind of, I, I should add, um, we had, there was a record store in Omaha. There were a couple of record stores in Omaha, um, kind of early on, uh, one was Homer's, um, <clears throat> but the one that really kind of catered to sort of the underground indie scene was this uh, record store called the Antiquarium, which was run by a gentleman named David Sink, who has since died. Um, but he was kind of like the guru of of what you should be listening to. He was just this hyper intelligent. Um, possibly thin older man who uh, curatorial and um, a completist when it came to all different styles of music from jazz to folk to punk um, and just knew more about music than any of us did. And so we would just go down there and hang out with him and he would just play records for us and we'd find out about new bands. Do you remember any? Oh, sure. So, like, that was the first time I had ever heard uh, this band called Brainiac, which is kind of having a little bit of a moment. Mm-hmm. Again, their their singer died a long time ago, but I think there's a documentary coming out about the band. Um, and finding out about um, Brainiac was, that was another band that kind of had the same effect as the Pixies, where there was, it was almost like unsettling how uh, how visceral the music was. Um, but it was so good. And they came to Omaha quite a bit, you know, they were from Dayton. So we were kind of, you know, we were in the Midwest. Um, so they made it through town a bunch of times. And every time they came to town, they absolutely destroyed live. Like they were the best live band I'd ever heard in my life. In fact, there was, there was one night, it was just so perfect. Um, they were playing at this club called the cog factory. And, um, during the middle of their set, the tornado sirens went off uh, in the city. And um, when the tornado sirens go off in Nebraska, like you, it's legit. Like your life is, <laughs> you, you need to address uh, the risk. Um, so like we all like, you know, the sirens go off and everyone in the club like barrels out of this super dingy club into like this car mechanic shop that was next door to the club. And for whatever reason we thought was more fortified um, and kind of waited out this tornado. 
so we could go back in and rock out to Brainiac after the tornado left town. But just the whole idea that as Brainiac rolls into town, a tornado comes with them just makes so much sense to me. I love that. As a, as a teenage boy, just like, my God, these guys are, a, they are a supernatural force. Yeah, you were up all like, night that night. You just you couldn't go to sleep. <laughs> yes, I was. I was so amped up. I just, it was, uh, yeah. So, and then uh, uh, kind of um, like one of the bands, like there were just these bands that came to Omaha that I think were surprised that there was this like burgeoning little music scene um, with kind of what would eventually become sort of the Saddle Creek Records community. Um, so like Spoon came through town. I remember seeing Spoon and it was just me and Connor, uh, from Bright Eyes. Like we were the only two people there Wow! and they wound up staying at, at, at my apartment that I was living in at the time. And then the next time they came through town, it was like, then there was 50 people. And the next time they came through town, it was like 300. Um, and then, uh, this band called the Wrens who were mm-hmm. from Secaucus, uh, just had a really special, kind of a place in Omaha's uh, music scene's heart. Like they played, they would make trips. They would, they would, you know, normally their, their tour would stop in Chicago, but they would make the extra eight hour drive to Omaha because the shows were so good. Cause there were just all these kids who were, who had found out about their records through, through this, an aquarium, this record store, Dave Sink, um, who just had exposed this whole community of young music nuts uh to these great bands that's i mean like you mentioned this sort of setting up this sort of you know the saddle creek community and like finding those towns that have those record stores or those radio stations to to pass on this information and like you said it does make a difference like yeah oh it was huge yeah that's i mean what what what, what created the ecosystem what yeah so having that record store was the the apex of that. Oh, totally. Uh, for a, a good long while, it was the source, um, because we did not have college radio. Um, and you know, unless you were like, had a subscription to CMJ, right. Uh, you know, you were not, it was really difficult to find out about sort of the new bands. And then when, uh, you know, I got old enough to realize that, gosh, some of these bands actually, go on tour like just even learning that that the band that you heard on the record or on the cassette was gonna come to your town and play those songs at live in front of you um (laughs) you know kind of you know you think about that like sort of visceral reaction that you have just to hearing the music on a on a cassette tape Mm -hmm. like imagine what it's like when it's like being performed you know three feet in front of you um so it was, and still is like, I'm just amped up talking about it. Like it was such an energizing experience for me to, to see these bands, um, perform these songs that I never, I mean, there were probably, I'm sure there were moments when I was younger, where I just didn't even think I would get to have that kind of experience with that band. Um, so yeah, it was very formative. Why was that town or that city so receptive to it? Because you might have a great record store and no one goes to it or no one cares. Why was it, was it David? Was it that uh, people were, were starving for it? Like what what were the other ingredients for that? 
That's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is luck. Part of it is that you had, I mean, and there were, there was a generation of local musicians. I haven't talked about the local component of this, but there were, there was a generation of older local musicians and older bands um, that came before us that kind of laid the groundwork for the local music scene. Um, But fundamentally like Omaha in the 1980s and 1990s, if you're a teenager, like there was not a lot going on. Like it's a great place to grow up as a small child and it's a great place to raise a family. But the in-between, there really wasn't a lot to offer like teenage kids and even college age kids. So it was kind of slim pickings. Um, And I think by default, people turned to music, to listening to it, to making it because there wasn't a lot else to do. And it was a great outlet, you know, Uh, um, to just kind of, and to create the other thing about Omaha is it is very community focused. Um, There's a real strong sense of community. Um, And so just like in the culture, in, you know, in being neighborly in like lots of people like that, they would join like lodges and uh, and be a part of like small community groups where you practiced being in a community. And that was like part of your experience of living was having these smaller communities that you engaged in some sort of activity with. And so that, that sense of community was transferred into the music scene where like we literally, we had a mayor, there was a mayor of Saddle Creek. Really? Um, yeah, when Saddle Creek was just forming, like what years were that again? Oh gosh, this would have been ninety four, ninety five, I think. Ninety four, ninety five sounds right. Yeah, and we were, you know, no one, no one cared about our bands. No one wanted to put out our records, and so we did it ourselves uh, and built up this, you know, this this community of musicians. And that, you know, we had promoters, we had musicians, and then eventually we had our own record label and we just did it all ourselves. Um, and I'm, you know, so there's Midwestern work ethic and there's this really strong sense of community that you like support each other and you help each other out. Right. And I think that, that piece of it, um, is, I mean, that does take work that doesn't happen instantly. It doesn't happen with opening up a website and or or doing one show and thinking it'll happen like this happens over time and you need a lot of people it can't just be you steve or you and matt or tam like if it was just you three there would have spoon wouldn't have come back if it was just three that's right (laughs) yeah we wouldn't be talking if it was just three um i wouldn't have had the great you know life adventure that i've had because of music if it was three so uh yeah that that strength of community um, I think played a really big role. Uh, and then you just, it just, for whatever reason, uh, there's definitely some luck and randomness that right. you would have, um, someone like Connor and someone like Todd Beckley from the faint and someone mm-hmm. like Tim from cursive, uh, and countless others, um, but those were kind of the big three at the time who were just really writing great music. Um, and great music that didn't sound anything like the other person's music. So you had these three very, with the faint, with bright eyes and with cursive, these three very distinct bands, but like fundamentally 
the craft, like the song writing and the craftsmanship were really strong. Um, and just for all of them to not only, you know, be, be friends, but to be in the same city and to be basically in the same generation of musicians, uh, and to sort of all come up, uh, together was just, that's the luck part. (laughs) You're right. Yeah, having all those at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And and also yeah. finding Special. yeah, but also the I think timing too on the on the music because people were really starting to look for more things and that time period and and a label like that, I think people notice that, oh wow, look at all these different things. It isn't just one sound. That was also right. probably a uh right. positive. We were diversified, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> your 401k and your IRA and everything right. else. That's right, man. Yeah, we made some good investments. You know what? We hedged against bad times. <laughs> it all worked out. Guy, it's all about diversifying, all right? Yeah. It is amazing, though. Like, I think about it, you know, I, I'm, I'm, we're all much older now, uh, and uh, that, you know, Tim, Tim, Tim does this for a living. This is his his career is as a songwriter um, and he stays very busy and he's very active and mm-hmm. same with Connor uh, and same with Todd, like Todd, I think Todd's making hats now too. It sounds silly, but he's like a haberdasher. Like he has a, uh, a custom uh, hat company. Where? Um, that, um, I think it's on, it's called recapitate. <laughs> yeah. Clever. Uh, and the hats are like really cool. If I didn't have such a little bean, tiny little head, uh, <laughs> I would probably buy one of his hats, but hats, I don't, hats and I don't, don't work out well together. Um, but yeah, they're all doing, they're still doing, you know, into their mid forties, uh, making music for a living, um, and, and doing it, doing it their way, uh, is really, again, just kind of crazy that. Um, after all this time and being from Omaha, although I don't think really any of them, none of them really reside. I got Connor, actually Connor doesn't live too far. I live, I don't know. We live about six blocks from each other now. Uh, but Tim, I think lives most of his time in Los Angeles and Todd moved to, I think Joshua tree. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, desert. Yeah. 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 Nicer weather. It's like 14 degrees in Omaha right now <laughs> with snow on the ground. So they're, they're probably, their feet are not cold like mine. <laughs> uh, oh, but during that, you know, after the March Hairs and mm-hmm. you had another little band for a second, right? Smash Mouth. <laughs> yes. Not that Smash Mouth. Yes. We, no, no. I know we, the indie we, rock band Smash Mouth. Yeah. 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 So uh, that was me. And Ted Stevens, who is plays guitar in cursive, mm-hmm. and replay when I went away for school, he replaced me in cursive. And this guy named Bart Volkmer, uh, Bart played bass in Smash Mouth, and he is now the general counsel of Dropbox. Wow! Yeah, yeah, local boy made good, <laughs> and a wonderful, a wonderful guy. Uh, um, and I, I get to see him. Um, I take trips out to San Francisco on a semi-regular basis. So I get to see him out there. Uh, yeah. 
so yeah, that was Smash Mouth, and we uh, we we made two records. I think only one of them got released. The other one is uh, in the vault. I you know what I think. I think it's out there. I don't know where. I have I have not really looked into it, but I know people have gotten a hold of it, uh, which is great. Um, uh, so it's somewhere out there. I don't know that I have a copy, but I know it's out there. Got it. <laughs> and then that turned into Slow Down Virginia, correct? And that was in the early nineties. Well, so actually, what happened is you're you're real close here. This is good. This is impressive, Tom. So. Mark Harris became Slowdown Virginia. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Right. And then Smash Mouth and Slowdown Virginia became cursive. So the drummer, uh, the drummer for Smash Mouth was a guy named um, Clint Schnazzi. Uh, in fact, that's still his name. His name is Clint Schnazzi. <laughs> and Clint uh, and I from Smash Mouth went and joined... Uh, basically myself, I was in Slowdown at the time, Matt um, McGinn and Tim Kasher from Slowdown to form Cursive. I could not have made that any less clear. I apologize. <laughs> I understand. Everyone else understands. <laughs> or they're yelling at me for not remembering uh, a timeline, which is fine because uh, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I mean, the, especially this era of the one, you know, the, the Cursive Records that you did, the Such Blinding Stars and the Storms of Early Summer. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I remember bugging Tim during our podcast interview and said, if you ever do reissues, like, let me know. Those are like super important to me and ended oh. up, you know, doing stuff for it. Um, but I think those, those records, um, with you, uh, are some of my favorite songs. I mean, cursive has such a long cat, you know, um, know career, it's but it's just, it's fun to hear that because I still feel 97. I can still feel <laughs> 98 when I listen to it. And right. it has, um, it's just this, it's angular, it's aggressive, it was emotional. And I just, I mean, is there anything that you remember from those, you know, first couple records that. Such Blinding Stars for Starving Eyes was like us just. It, there was something really sludgy about it that I didn't love. Like the, the dynamics were great and the, and the angst was great. Um, but on storms, it became apparent to me that like Tim and the band was really onto something in terms of developing a really unique uh, sound and sort of the interplay between the guitars and the drums and bringing this very disciplined or angular focus to the music kind of uh squeezing out all the sludginess uh and really doing something that was uh like, i mean discipline is the is the is the word i like to use but i think it i think angular is also a good word but there was just this discipline to the music um that kind of uh i thought was just really really cool um and just kind of fit with sort of my my approach to the guitar which was very kind of percussive and riff based and you know sort of finding a series of notes and uh and and repeating them <laughs> uh and yeah we just it was just it was clear that like uh the band had really hit on something um and then uh you know with um uh, with Domestica 
and even with the EP that came out um, before Domestica, they kind of took it to a whole nother level of just sort of bringing in this um, uh, really uh, thematic and anthemic uh, component to that to that mix that just made it um, really special. For and then for you, did you feel the emo tag? for those first two records? Did you feel people attaching it to it? Uh, you know, probably. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, I think back then it, it had not yet become like such a toxic word. No. Um, and that it really just, I mean, when like back then when someone said emo, I was like, yeah, man, like Fugazi, like, Mm-hmm. Fugazi's an e- Fugazi was an emo band for me. Like that's what I thought of as emo <laughs> music. And like Fugazi is untouchable. They are unassailable. They are one of the greatest bands of all time. Um, so it just didn't have that uh, that stink uh, and that taint uh, and that sort of negative um, sort of uh, saccharine, mm-hmm. uh, whiny connotation that. Um, permeates uh, today. It has now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we were definitely an emo band. <laughs> <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember I remember getting the records from Sunday Service through AAM. Um, I remember oh, yeah. getting those in, in college and, and I was in college from 96 to 2000 and getting those records and, and getting um, them, I think it, it, it turned me on to Saddle Creek. Um, yeah. You know, it turned me on to that area of the country because I hadn't being from the East coast. I didn't know. I didn't know that stuff was going on. So I really, it's, it was, you know, you mentioned earlier just about, you know, sort of the perfect ingredients. It's, it's, um, it really was an amazing moment to have you guys all meet and, and all do your own thing and all be supportive. And I think that's, that's the only way that it works. And for, for you to, um, you know, still be in touch with everybody. I mean, just all that is, is kind of, uh, amazing in itself and should be sort of thought about more. It's, it is special. And I am, I am Tom, I'm very much on the outskirts of it now, just because of my, uh, I mean, I, I'm not a full-time musician. Mm -hmm. I have a day job. I have three kids and a wife and that is my, that is really my life. Um, is the work that I do. And, um, uh, and my family. Um, so I don't, I don't stay out late anymore. Like, uh, my old rock <laughs> cronies do. I just can't hang with them. But <laughs> the fact that I can, you know, that, um, that Matt and Tim, um, were passionate about putting out a criteria record, uh, at this phase of, you know, criteria's like, uh, life cycle, um, which is a strange thing in and of itself. Um, and that, you know, they're excited about it, um, really means a lot to me that they, they, they care, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and part of that is because we have such a long history and when we see each other, you know, there's no, uh, it's just like 1997. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to mention white octave before we get to criteria real quick. I think I definitely saw you at the cradle as white octave. Um, I went to Elon, um, down the road. Oh, no way. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely saw you guys. I mean, it was probably at go four 
or Cradle oh, or um, I love that club. Go which was so much fun. Go was really fun. Yeah. What happened? That was a cool. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I don't know. I feel like I mean, it, someone time, closed it down like, or something. That club yeah. and 533 Uprising in Winston-Salem were my two favorites. There's this club right kind of on the main strip, um, just down from Cat's Cradle called the local 506. Yes. Um, which was a really great club in Chapel Hill. Uh, in fact, the White Octave is getting back together to play the Cat's Cradle's 50th birthday party. That is so fucking rad. And yeah. a f- friend that's from down there was like, so you coming? Because he showed me the, the <laughs> bands, and I was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's so yeah. cool. God yeah, bless the cradle, excited. man. I know. I know. What an institution. It's incredible that it's been around for 50 years. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of like the same thing about this antiquarium, this record store. Like, the the cat's cradle is, you know, so critical to the ecosystem for music in Chapel Hill. Uh, and part of what sustained that music scene for so long was to have such a great venue for local acts and for local acts to open for great touring yes. acts. And all that stuff contributes to the health of the scene. That's what I loved, like going to those shows, like if it was whatever band, like there'd be the opener and yeah. everyone would be there. Ah. it'd be like jammed and you're like this is the opener band like i did it made me again happy that this city could you know or this the area could could do that because it was like it was almost for a different purpose yep that's community baby yeah so what so when you were in school um how were you doing the white octave at the same time and uh, being able to do that in the early 2000s? Like, was it just on breaks? Like, what was the... Uh, well, my answer is going to be none of it very well. Um, but, um, yeah, the band was a full-time thing. I mean, we put out two records, we toured. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about the school I went to is there was no... They didn't take attendance. It's not nice. It's not a nice thing. But one of the components of the school I went to that you were not required to be in class. Wow. Um, and that you were, you were, you were essentially graded on one exam at the end of the semester. So as long as you could show up and take the test, uh, and, uh, you know, answer the questions, uh, in the way that the professor was looking for you to answer them, you were fine. Um, uh, so that was kind of the strategy I took for most of school was just to kind of, um, you know, study for the test and take the test and hope that I do well enough to not um, be throwing away all the money that I borrowed to get that education. <laughs> wow. Did you like, was it like, I got to finish this test cause I got to leave. I got to go on the road. <laughs> like, <I> need- <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact, the day after I graduated, uh, from Duke, I went on tour. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was just kind of like, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a soundbite, but that, I mean, that kind of crystallizes sort of my experience there was, I knew if I could go to a really good, like reputable school that I, as long as I was average, I didn't need to be exceptional at right. Duke to get a good job. Um, and that would free up, 
my time to go and be in a band. Uh, it was it was the reason I went to Duke because I knew there was a good music scene. I knew that uh, I could find musicians. I had already kind of been through town before, and there was a an Omaha guy named uh, Matt Oberst, Connor's older brother, uh, who was living there, and you know had offered to connect me with musicians. So I knew I could do it there. Uh, and still do school and, you know, make it, make it work well enough. That's amazing. Well, thanks, Tom. Well, no, it's just, again, being able to have the foresight to, you know, not pick a random just for the school or realize that there were two things that you were trying to do and to find a place that fit both of those was, I think, um, people sometimes don't do that. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, that's kind of that's it. That's what works for me in in undergraduate. Um, like I was very intensely engaged in undergraduate school, and also intensely engaged in music, and sort of having both sort of things going on at the same time um, was, in a lot of ways, like better for me because I felt like I. Uh, was exercising both sides of my brain, uh, which made the other side better. So I felt like I was a better student because I would, you know, after class, I, I would go and and write music and uh, and create music with people. And then uh, I was a better musician because of the discipline that I brought to studying and uh, and figuring out how to excel at school. So it all, they always went hand in hand for me and it just would have been weird. Like even after law school, um, when I started working as a lawyer, uh, just just continuing to try and find that balance and it got harder. Um, I eventually left, I was working at a law firm and I left the law firm for a couple of years so I could tour because it just became kind of impossible to, to, to really serve the firm and the clients of the firm while being a traveling musician. Um, but I always tried to find that balance between doing sort of whether it was academics or my job and, uh, and music. And then for you to take that time off, you were confident in yourself to be like, I can get another job. Uh, apparently so. Uh, (laughs) I think, I think if you had asked my parents at the time, uh, the wisdom of that decision, they would probably have a different answer. Um, but it all worked out, Tom, it all worked out. So, uh, we, we try not to think too deeply about those decisions, but it, uh, it was a great adventure. So after white octave, the left North Carolina, um, and you doing this, you were starting the criteria, right? And that's, when did that start again? That was 2002, 2003, right? Yeah. Right. So like the record I think came out in maybe spring or summer of Oh three, I think. Yeah. Um, on initial records. uh, Yeah. Andy Rich of Initial Records, Andy Rich, who's just one of the sweetest guys you'll ever meet, was the owner founder of Initial Records and is now, I think, I can't remember which um, uh, casino he works for, but he like, oh, right. runs, like 
one of the premier like poker rooms in the country. Like he's right. like the the director of poker <laughs> at like the horseshoe or you know just some of the Bellagio. I can't remember what it in is in Vegas. Yes, yeah, and he was like he's always been kind of a even when we, he was at the record label, like he would go and play. Uh, he'd enter poker tournaments to raise money to put out records. <laughs> like that's how he, I mean, that's how he raised money. He would go and yeah, he, he, with his poker earnings, he would, um, he would invest that money into the label. I loved initial uh, records. So I always gave yeah. them a shot whenever they had a record coming out. Cause it was like, oh, you're a good man. Yeah. Andy was a great guy. Uh, and the guys that worked at that label were just really wonderful, uh, wonderful people. Uh, but yeah, so initial Andy, uh, you know, he had put out the white octave, uh, the second white octave record. Menergy. Uh, yep. Menergy. Uh, and, um, was open to putting out the criteria record. And so, yeah, he put it out and, um, you know, yeah, the songs I, I had to move back to Omaha and I was living in Matt McGinn's basement. He kind of set me up. Like I was like, I think it was like the bedroom I was in, like had like the boiler or the furnace right. too. It was just, it was not glamorous. Um, but he gave me a place to stay while I looked for a house and kind of got settled back into Omaha. And I wrote most of the record in his basement. Wow. Uh, yeah. While I was, uh, you know, kind of readjusting to being back in Omaha and, uh, and looking for a, a place to live. And a couple songs on the, uh, is it Engard? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. On guard. On guard. Oh yeah. On guard. It's like Jeez. that fencing. The fencing. Right. On guard. On guard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess the two songs that stick out, and I think for a lot of people, is the coincidence and me on your front porch. Anything specifically yeah. about those two you want to? I think worth mentioning. Uh, <laughs> sure. So um, they are about uh, an old girlfriend um, from law school who is a wonderful woman and just a really cool lady uh, who now lives in Seattle. And, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of interesting bookends to the relationship. Me on your front porch is about the beginning of the relationship, uh, which started kind of the second year of law school at Duke. She was a, a law student at Duke too. And sort of the oddballs of the, of, um, of the, of our class kind of sifted to the bottom throughout the first year. Like we all kind of found each other because we weren't, um, we weren't like the other kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all moved into a house together. And, um, I remember we, like, we kind of, and Amy, this is Amy is her name, uh, had agreed to move into this house. And that was just really frightening and exciting for me because I had a major crush on her. <laughs> and, uh, the first day back for second year of law school, um, I show up, I think I had actually just come off tour, uh, with the white octave and I show up at, at this house that we're renting and Amy is on the front porch and it's just me and her, like we're, we don't have a key to the house and we're just hanging out on the front porch. And like that night I kind of had the feeling that, you know what, this might just deteriorate into a relationship. <laughs> 
exactly how I envisioned it. So, and it did, and it was great. Uh, she's super cool. And then the coincidence is kind of about the end of the relationship. And that's sort of this, this coincidence of us living in the same house and all these things have sort of, uh, come to an end and, uh, and now it's time to say goodbye. I like that. Yeah. Is that good? Yeah, that's that good? great. That is probably the only time I've explained those two songs in that detail. But you, you asked, you asked I did. a really good question because those two songs just happen to be connected in that way. Well, nice you know, job, look, huh? look, I mean, this isn't my first rodeo, okay? I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess for people that maybe haven't listened or maybe they know cursive or maybe they don't know, you know, white octave, like I... When I first heard Criteria, which I was working at labels in New York and, and I probably, you know, got it from initial and just the, it's like the riff is it's, I don't know. I feel like there's somebody like holding it up and showing it during the song. Does that make sense? Like (laughs) the riff is there and you need to acknowledge it. Embrace the riff. Yeah. We are not background music. Right. You, you, you don't you don't put us on at like a bar mitzvah and think that you're going to be able to talk over it. No. Uh, yeah, it's very in your face. I mean, this gets back to like what we were talking about earlier about just like having this really visceral reaction to the Pixies or to Brainiac. Like that was just like uh, um, embedded in me as like that's a really cool quality <laughs> in a band and music is to like you kind of have no choice but to sort of be captured by it sonically. Um, and so I like, I like finding that moment where you can, um, uh, really, uh, uh, assail someone with just a ton of riffage and rock. Well, as you said earlier about wanting to find a guitar to play that song from drama Rama, or sorry, yeah, yeah. Or no, sorry, Love and Rockets. Love and Rockets. The, yeah. the same kind of thing where you know I'm hearing "Prevent the World" or I'm hearing you know a White Octave song, and it's like I want to figure out how to play that riff. And I, I, I'm Anytime. a yeah. I was Anytime. like a, I was a guitar player being like this. It had that same effect where you're. That's that's what I meant about that. The riff was in front. It's almost like it had it like tabbed out but you were hearing it. <laughs> totally. Um, where, again, that was that just from those Pixies days or was there other um, influences yeah. or other thoughts around like the construction Absolutely. of the song? So uh, virtually every Criteria song is an effort to rip off um, Quicksand and Chavez. Wow. Uh, yeah. Shout out sure. to Wally. Like those, Oh God, Walter! <laughs> he's, he's so good at what he does. So good. Um, still yeah. doing Gorilla Biscuits. Still doing like all those other like. Bless his heart. I mean, he uh, and Quicksand is still playing shows too. He yeah. put out a record what two years ago. Yep. Um. So, uh, yeah. I mean that like sort of post hardcore art rock, like heavy art rock scene uh, was really. Uh, influential from like the riff standpoint mm-hmm. um, and like Walter from a vocal standpoint, like I have a, I am not a good singer uh, and not that Walter is a bad singer, but like uh, his 
sort of tonality, sort of that kind of piercing angular mid-range is kind of my sweet spot too. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, they were a huge influence on me. That's amazing. I actually can totally hear that now. You're yeah, totally right? like the mid. Oh, wow. That, I never even thought about that. Yeah. Wally, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you landmine spring motherfucker. Y'all, that's so funny you said that because I was just um, my son. I have an eight year old son. I have three boys, and my oldest is eight. And we were just kind of sitting uh, at the dinner table, just the two of us. I got home late, and I was eating my dinner. And he was, he had found out that dad's music is on Alexa. Oh. And so he was playing, he was playing me all these, oh my gosh, now my Alexa's listening to me. <laughs> um, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> I'm surrounded by Alexis. Um, and, but he just thought it was really cool that like all of dad's bands were on this, this tube. And uh, he asked me like, what's your favorite song? And I told the tube to play uh, landmine spring. Uh, not that it's necessarily my favorite song, but that was the song that came to mind Wow! Uh, first. And I would always listen to that song uh uh, before uh, I would take an exam. Really? Like that was, yeah. Would that be like, I'm going to ace this motherfucker. Give me, give yeah, me an MI spring. Was, exactly. It was like the, uh, it was the, it was my hype song. <laughs> and then I would listen to Obladi Oblada uh, after the test was over um, to relieve myself of any illusion that I had just uh, aced the test. I was like, eh, life goes on. <laughs> I can see you on the campus doing that. Like I, I've been on Duke campus enough. I can be like, nope, there's that. There's that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, there's just, Steve. Yeah. Maybe he passed. Who knows? <laughs> I just forgot to ask you about this. Did, did you ever go to any Duke coffee house shows? Yeah, absolutely. Did you play um, there? I saw cave in. Yeah. We, we played there. We played there with, well, we played there with cave in. I saw cave in, without us and with us. Um, who else did I see? Yeah. Man, I probably saw a dozen shows there. Probably played there maybe two or three times. Okay. Cause I was trying to yeah. think if I had seen you there or, uh, seen one of your bands because that a, fr- a friend that used to book it, I still talk to this guy, Jason oh, no way. and huh. we'll randomly catch up about, you know, uh, shows or something, but I thought that was also a really special spot. That was that was a cool club, man. I mean, it was I mean, on it was, campus. Yeah, which was weird because like Duke's not like a real like hip. No. It's not you know UNC Chapel Hill. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's the safety school for all the kids who didn't get into Princeton and Harvard. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so they kind of have a chip on their shoulder. And anyway. Uh, it just isn't the kind of place you would think would have a really great club, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The coffee house was sweet. It's the just stage was a little tall. It was, was tall. tall for my taste. Yeah, like if you fell off of that, this is that's bad news. <laughs> you're, yeah, you you will feel it in the morning. There is a VHS tape of my band playing at the Duke Coffee House. No one will see it, what? but there is so a VHS what? tape. 
what band were you in? You would have never heard of us. We were. Was this when you were at Elon? Yeah, it was this when I was at Elon. We had a band called. Oh, what the hell were we called? Twisted Kites. Twisted Kites. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was fun. We played on campus a lot and played like you know if we opened up for some bands once in a while on mostly my senior year, like '99 or 2000. But we sounded like Jay June. Uh, Texas oh, sure. is the reason. That's kind of what we yep. sounded like. Nice. Yeah, we played. We would come across those bands for whatever reason. Like Chicago was anytime like Cursive or even the White Octave would make it out to Chicago. Like it was either June or Texas is the reason or the Get Up Kids. Like we always got on these great shows. Um, so there's always like tons of kids. We played this club called the Fireside Bowl. I don't yeah, know if ever totally heard of that. Yeah, it's like an old bowling alley, uh, and it was just an absolute blast to play there. Yeah, I know. Uh, I remember seeing all those bands. Yeah, that that late '90s time was fun. Um, before the internet took hold, and uh, <laughs> it was you know a little bit it again all the mystery. When I saw your band at the Cradle. I had never, like, I maybe have listened to the record, but I still was like, right. I don't know what you look like. I don't right. know what uh, you're going to do. Like, there was, I just, yeah. the unknown had me stand there instead of being like, well, you know what? They're going to do two songs off this one, and they're not right. going to do that. Like, I don't want to know all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, um uh, you're absolutely right. I had the same, uh, I feel the same way about, uh, social media, the internet and, uh, reunions. Um, what's your they, thoughts they, on like, reunions? I, think, <laughs> I know you want Tom. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> uh, the reunion, I think the, like the high school reunion has been killed. Not that I have any particular fascination with the high school reunion, but I went to my, uh, I went to my like, I don't know, 20th or 25th. It's been a while, uh, high school reunion. And, it was like me and two other guys and it was, you know, we were a class of like 300 and there's like three dudes there. Oh no. And it's because everyone knows what it's up to. Like the thing you do at the reunion is you have like the superficial conversation where you catch right. up on like, what are you doing for a living? Are you married? Like what, what's going on in your life? <laughs> and all you need to do is go to LinkedIn and Facebook and boom, you're golden. Right. Like, if you're more curious about someone, you can find out about them. You're, so you think that's the downfall of reunions, the internet? I think it's, I think it's yes. I think the internet is, at least at all boys high schools. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a little different at co-ed schools. Maybe there's a little more curiosity there, but I think for a bunch of dudes who went to a prep school, like all they want to know is uh, what, do you, what job do you have and is your wife good looking is probably all they care about. <laughs> and are we going to the bar after this? Right, exactly. <laughs> they were probably already at the bar. They were probably already I was, at the bar. I was, I was the fool who was like, oh, yeah, I'll go and say hello to people. I'll actually talk to humans. Yeah, you're but right. No. The last anyway. the ra last reunion I went to for my high school was before the internet took hold, and we got mm. shut down by the cops, which I thought was a pretty good... Nice. That, that is a that's good a end. Sign. Yeah, that's a great sign. Yeah, as long as no one got hurt. Uh that that that's actually that's good. But you were courted by some major labels with with criteria, correct? Uh, yes. What was that like? And what what was that? Was that before two thousand five? Yes, it was. Uh, it was 
super flattering and exciting and cool and uh, bizarre. Um, so our first show, we had someone from, I think, Atlantic or Capitol, Capitol Records. Someone from Capitol Records showed up to our first show ever as a, as a live band. We had made the record. It was our CD release show was our first show. Um, and cause I kind of put the band together after I made the record and, um, uh, yeah, what was her name? Laurel Stearns, maybe Is that her name anyway. So yeah, there was like capital and, um, uh, a Geffen input imprint called, I think Strutter or something like that. Uh, Will Langolf was his name. um, uh, and then, um, who else? I think RCA, I mean, none of it ever materialized and, and understandably so. Uh, but, uh, it was, it was very entertaining and flattering and just kind of a great distraction. I bet. So they came to Omaha. Omaha. That's right. Yeah. And I think we were maybe going to, I think they, someone wanted to fly us out to like play a showcase like where you just go and like you just go to a practice space or a club during the day mm-hmm. and just like play for the record label people. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the uh, staff will come out at, at lunchtime. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we did not do that. Um, but we did have people come to like, we were, we were pretty active back then. So we'd have, you know, anytime we played New York, there would be label people there that would say hello and, um, so yeah, that was kind of cool. And it, I, part of me was like, at the time I kind of rationalized it as, yeah, it makes sense. Like we're kind of, of the Saddle Creek was really hot. Like Saddle Creek was a really like big deal, um, mm-hmm. back then. And I think probably some folks viewed, uh, criteria as probably the more, a fairly accessible, uh, um, uh, band. Totally. You know, we're not. Um, you know, I'm not like spitting out blood at the concerts and, you know, uh, saying evil things in my lyrics and they're fairly catchy songs. Yeah. It's straightforward. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it made, it made sense to me that there would be some interest just because of all that was going on with bright eyes and cursive and the faint at the time that we were kind of an unattached, um, uh, band. We didn't really have at the time, a big, a big label like Saddle Creek had not stepped up, uh, to put out any other records. So yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah. It's weird. I, I, um, I work at labels and so the, it's always, it's always weird to see the bands come in, you know, when they have to do a showcase or we're doing those things. Yeah. I just look at them. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just, it just Even at the time I was like, wow, this is completely artificial. Like, yeah. There's just, uh, I don't know how you, um, really assess. I mean, I guess you can assess a band that way, but, um, it just seemed a little demeaning. I don't know. Like see it in the town that you're big in or see it in the town right. with other bands. Don't like this artificial, like performance, like what's, yeah. uh, you heard the song. What's the, yeah. I don't know. It seems. Right. And for me, it was like, Hey man, if you really like the band just come see us. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, come out on our terms. <laughs> uh, not, not your terms. No. If you're really interested, 
So, and that was, to me, that was a clear indication that the interest was not probably strong enough to warrant going to a label where you just would be one of, you know, 40 bands and kind of get lost in the shuffle. 40? You try uh, hundreds. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it just, yeah. But hit the point home even harder. I mean, it just, we just would have been completely lost in the shuffle. And around that same time, um, uh, Brit from Spoon was going through, uh, you know, they had put out a series of sneaks on a major label and it was kind of a disaster for them. That was like kind of very fresh in Omaha's mind of like, man, major labels can really screw your band up. Uh, now everything turned out fine for spoon. Um, but at the time, like people were like, damn, that label totally screwed them over, like held up their record mm-hmm. and wouldn't release them from the contract. And it was just, it was just kind of a nightmare for them. So, I didn't, I didn't want a nightmare, um, or even the, 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 the small possibility of one. Right. And then Saddle Creek released when we break in 05 and it has, it has the jam, (laughs) which is prevent the world. Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes, of course. And there's a video. Yeah. We did a video. Uh, yep. That's the, that's kind of, that was kind of the, that was the, that was the tune. That was the what tune did it feel like record. to take a swing at that song at that year? Like, do you remember anything about it? Like, do you, do you, did you feel? Sure, man. I felt like a caged tiger, you know, I really wanted to play music full time. Yeah. Um, and was trying to figure out how can I, how can I make that happen as someone who just spent, you know, $140,000 on law school and had a really good job and, uh, otherwise very content in my life. Um, how do I justify leaving all that to play music? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and just being really frustrated by that, but also, you know, there was some sweetness in all of the, uh, upper class tragedy, uh, of my life. Like I, I was self-aware enough to know that like no one should be feeling sorry for me. Um, I am a very lucky boy. So, uh, there's, there's hopefully enough winking, uh, in the song that it, it, it's, there's, there's, there's some irony, uh, and some, I don't take it too seriously, but yeah, at the time I really, I mean, I did, I like, I, I was like, I mean, naming the album when we break like not if mm-hmm. <laughs> when uh and you know it had a couple different meanings obviously but one of those meanings was you know when the band breaks like when we get big like when we break um uh so i mean it was there was an effort to sort of um write that into my reality and make it real mm-hmm. um uh, and, and it worked for a little while. I mean, I got, I took about two and a half years off of, um, uh, of work, um, to just play music. Um, and it was a great, incredible experience to get to do that. Uh, so yeah, it was a great adventure. 
With with that with that record in that swing, I was at Equal Vision at the time, and we were you know trying to break oh, yeah. records, and we were trying to get videos on Fuse or uh, yeah, you know there was the, the you know obviously the MTV Two was actually still playing, you know uh, Dude, records. Who was on Equal Vision then? Yes, Armor for Sleep, Fall of Troy, Circus Survive, Chiodos, okay. uh, Snake Across the Crown. Who else was around? Yeah. There? Yeah, dude. Uh, we did a seven-week tour with Follow Troy. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't even remember that. Yeah, dude. We opened. So it was who was it? It was Fall of Troy, Horse the Band, yes, Criteria, and Poison the Well. Poison the Well opened. No, they were the headliners. Okay, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, we all opened for Poison the Well, and Fall of Troy went over great. So did Horse the Band. Criteria, not as much. But it was an absolute wild, oh my God, the Fall of Troy guys. I mean, I, I don't know what they're up to now, but they were absolute hellraisers back then. I mean, they were very young. I think the guitar player was maybe 19. They destroyed every night. Like, they were, they were a absolutely frenetic and kinetic band but uh yeah that was uh it was that was an intense seven weeks oh my god horse the band and fall troy like that's enough and then it's like poison the well like oh my god (laughs) yes all of that uh do you know the i don't cool you worked at that label i've always um told uh maddie mcginn anytime he talks to me about like publishing uh, criteria stuff because he's kind of helped out with that mm-hmm. i'm like our sweet spot is foreign made pickup trucks like <laughs> honda like honda trucks should use criteria songs like they should use criteria songs in their commercials that's our sweet spot foreign made pickup trucks and 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 uh you know like honda um not even toyota Toyota's too the the Ram is too American. It's too country. Right. But the Honda, the Honda, like I don't know if the Honda Ridgeline truck anymore. Right. That Criteria songs can totally sell Honda pickup trucks. What about the Tesla one? You gonna do the Cybertruck? I think it would fit the Cybertruck. Dude, the Cybertruck would not fit in my garage. I have a very tiny garage. Uh, My brother actually just ordered a Tesla Model S last week. So I'm I'm excited to uh, I am surrounded by threes. My neighbor across the street and the neighbor behind me both have Model Threes, and they love them. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. great. See what we got? We got yeah. But man. I think I think we should petition the Cybertruck marketing to find a Criteria song. <laughs> uh, I would not stop you. That's, a, that's not a bad idea. We can put prevent the world on that advertisement. Right? It's still a song. It's still around. <laughs> It is still available for all your sinking needs. (laughs) Well, I wanted to get a couple things and then talk about the new record. One thing was the producing records. And I think with you making music, performing a bunch of instruments, like having that knack, what itch or what's, you know, it's is that scratch or scratch itch, whatever, um, uh, for you versus your own music. Oh, so, um, (laughs) I don't even know, dude. I think the reason people ask me to produce the records is because I had the recording equipment. Really? And yeah. And it was kind of like, well, 
Steve has a Pro Tools HD1 system and some microphones and some nice mic preamps and a house. Let's <laughs> let's see if let's see if he'll record it. So I think it was more it was less about the Steve, um, <laughs> at least for most of them. Now maybe do you know Jonah? Do you know Jonah Bear? Yes, of course. I was just texting with him today. Oh my God! Oh, he's such a sweet man. So I think the Love Kill genuinely thought that I was going to be a producer. Interesting. Uh, and, and I feel like I almost kind of delivered on it. Uh, but that's probably the closest I've come to really being like being involved, not in just sort of <laughs> letting someone use my recording equipment, but like, uh, you know, coming up with ideas for songs and, uh, do you like that? Really kind of, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it. So part of it is definitely like chess player, chess piece. Like I like, I like being the chess piece, uh, and learning how all the different pieces move. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can be the chess player, like the chess player is the thing that's really cool because then you kind of, uh, you, you can kind of control the board and, and predict movement and, and sort of orchestrate, uh, all these different things based upon sort of this, these sets of rules. Um, so for me, the being the producer was like being the chess player, uh, and understanding how all the pieces move and work together and, uh, orchestrating it in a way that is, uh, rock optimal. And do you think your lawyer background helps navigate the tough conversations? Oh, I don't know. Uh, actually probably maybe a little bit. I mean, um, I think it's probably more, uh, what I got from my mother who is, um, she is not a lawyer. My dad is a lawyer. Um, but my mom was always very good at relating, uh, and she could just relate with anyone Wow, and, and just hold a conversation and ask good questions and, and really be, interesting and interested in others. Um, and present, uh, yeah. And I like to get the quality that, um, I got from her, um, when you catch me on a good day. Uh, so, you know, just showing a little bit of interest in others and, and wanting to understand them, uh, goes a long way, especially when you're trying to convince them of something, right. um, uh, that, that you've kind of built up that rapport and uh I've listened and some, some credibility yeah so 15 years you're gonna have a new criteria record why not why not you're gonna open up the <laughs> cursive tour so that means you're quitting your job again or you, or you got some pto uh, no <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna work from the road as much as i can nice. uh and then when you know when i have days that uh i am not productive i will I will put in for PTO, but my, um, um, my boss, uh, the CEO of this company is also a musician, uh, and plays bass in a band called Clarence Tilton, who actually a really good band here in Omaha. And so he gets it, you know, he's, he's actually excited for me. Um, I mean, obviously he wants to be sure that I can still sort of perform some basic functions while I'm away. Uh, but, uh, he's like genuinely excited, uh, and is probably going to come out 
Um, we've got offices in Denver and in San Diego. Uh, so I think he's probably going to come out for a couple of the shows right. and hang out and yeah. So I'm super lucky, man. I got a, I got a, I got a company that is supportive of, of, uh, of this adventure. So it's really cool. And so when did the, when did the music start? When did you feel like this was going to start up again? <sighs> wow. A long time ago. Uh, we tracked the drums for this record. So this record was built. Uh, um, and by that, I mean, um, we weren't all in a room together playing the songs live. Mm -hmm. Um, just by the nature of our lives and my life in particular, just having, being able to take that much time to make a record just wasn't in the cards. So we tracked the drums in January of 2014. Wow. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I built the songs around those original drum lines and some of them evolved um, pretty dramatically. Others, not so much, um, but just kind of every, uh, you know, in since, I mean, I've got three kids and I've had some fairly intense uh, professional uh, stretches uh, and I'm married uh, and try to have a good, healthy relationship with my wife, Emily, um, so music was not, uh, always, or even often the priority. Mm -hmm. Um, I, there were just other things that were more important, um, and still are. So I just had to find time, uh, and finding time to like get into a creative space was really hard to do. So it just took a long time. <laughs> it just took a long time. Uh, but, uh, stuck with it and I'm super excited for people to hear it. I mean, I think life goes through those where you you were busy with your job or you had your kids or, you know, there were things you're going on in your life and to be able to keep doing it and be able to have these songs essentially stay alive. I mean, if you recorded yeah. part of it in 2014, they've been, they've been alive and, <laughs> and you're able to get them out and then be able to share them with people, um, is pretty, pretty magical. Yeah. It, it is super magical, dude. Like I feel uh, really lucky to be, uh, to, to have the record coming out and to be able to go out on tour and perform it, uh, and to play, uh, prevent the world every night, uh, uh as well as the coincidence of me on your front porch, um, is going to be super, it's just going to be super cool. I'm really excited. And, uh, uh, very keen to deliver every night. Nice. Uh, yeah. so the first song is agitate resuscitate. That's the first song. That's mm -hmm. out. And this bad boy's yeah. out January 17th. It is. It's happening. It's imminent. <laughs> All right. A few more. What do you want to do that you haven't done? This could be anything. Um, Oh, what do I want to do that I haven't done? God, man. I mean, the last thing I really wanted to do was to make a third record. I'd never made a third record with a band before. Wow, you're two. right. I've always made two records. Like in every band I've been, um, been in, it's always been two. Um, so I really wanted to make a third record and was, uh, even though it took a long time, was very focused on getting that done. And so, uh, 
I'm just kind of smelling the roses right now, man. I'm smelling the flowers. Like, it feels good to have gotten that done. Um, I don't have any. I don't have any big grand uh, desires right now, other than to just go on tour and uh, and rock extremely hard every night. Love it. Yeah, man. Cool. I'm excited. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you a ton for the interest and for taking the time. Washed up emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shuttle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com